If you have your Bibles, turn over to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to examine, in fact, you're going to be engrafted with verses 1 through 11. Now, that is a pericope of Scripture. Pericope meaning a cutting out, a set of verses that forms one coherent thought or unit. Usually with full gospel preachers, what you hear is a topical sermon. That is, the preacher gets out a blank piece of paper, has a blank computer screen, comes up with a premise. Now, a lot of times the premise you hope is right, but it may be right, might, might be wrong. But what the preacher does is he goes through certain books of the Bible and finds verses on that subject and then cobbles together a sermon that way. That's not a wrong way of preaching per se, but you can get off the tracks. For example, there is, a, uh, there is the teaching on seed faith. Seed faith is based upon Luke 6.38 and Philippians 4.19. The thing is, if you look at, say, Philippians 4.19, that verse says, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now, seed faith is based upon the idea or what people will call the principle of giving to God and he multiplies it back. So, what is in mind in seed faith is the initial gift, whether it be a tithe, whether it be an offering or something like that. But when you look at Philippians 4.19, it says that God is supplying the needs of the Philippians not according to the gift, not according to the tithe, but actually according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. There is not a gift in mind in that verse. There is no tithing in mind in that verse. So that's just one example how you can have a premise of what we would call here seed faith, and then you look at one of the verses that is supposed to support that premise or support that truth, and the verse really doesn't support it at all. Um, there's no giving in Philippians 4.19, although the Philippians had given Paul a gift, and he is thanking them for the gift. He turns around and says, God will meet their needs, what? According to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It's all about death, burial, and resurrection. It's not about the gift that they gave, which is a nice sacrifice and aroma up to God, but their need is met based upon Jesus' finished work. Amen. Now, I'm going to be preaching from the King James, but I've made some translation changes, and you're going to hear that as we go through. So let's do this. Let's dive into The Philippians had been or were in the midst of being persecuted for the faith. Let me read to you Philippians 1.29. He said, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So there is the believing allegiance, believing in Christ, and then also the what you would call the happenstance, because it doesn't occur with every believer, but there is the prospect of, of also having to suffer for his sake and for his name. 
Now, in that context, you go back to verse 1 and 2, and it says, if, the, if there be therefore any consolation, meaning if there's any act of emboldening another in the belief or course of action, meaning if there's going to be any strengthening in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if there be any fellowship of the Spirit, any bowels of mercies, meaning a display of concern over another's misfortune. And here the context is persecution. Paul writes, if you're going to have any of these, if these are going to be existent in the body, because when you take a look at these scriptures, this is what the local church body is all about. This is the aspiration for the local church. Consolation a belief in Christ, comfort of love, fellowship of spirits, that is, fellowship one with another, with believers of the same faith. If any bows and mercies, displays of concern over what has happened to another believer in the local body. And again, in the context here, persecution. Paul is talking about if you're going to have these things in the local body. This is the aspiration for the church. The church is not theater performance. It is not box office attendance. It's not small groups gathering around hobbies or personal interest. It is where believers find strength and courage and mercy in the Lord. Where they gather around the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord in newness of life and look forward to his soon coming return. And Paul says, if you're going to have these things, then he goes into verse 2 and says, Fulfill ye my joy. Fill up my joy because he's going to tell you what to do or how to accomplish these things, how these things come about in the local body. Now let's take a look at fulfill ye my joy. Paul here is writing scripture. So, you know, if you take it literally, you're having the apostle say, okay, fill up my joy personally, Paul, me, Paul. But he's writing scripture here. Remember, Peter wrote that holy men of old, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And that's where we get inspired scripture. So even though Paul says, fill up my joy, he's really speaking about the joy of the Father. Fill up the Father's joy. If you want these things, fill up the Father's joy, and then he's going to lay out how to accomplish those things. Let me put you in remembrance of Jesus. In Hebrews, we read this. Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice that, who for the joy that was set before him. A lot of times we hear 
preachers say, well, the joy set before him was the church. And there is some truth to that. But listen to what he says in the Gospel of John. He says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you shall know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father has taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone. And then get this. For I do always those things that please him. Amen. Remember where Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. He worked to please the Father. And here we see fulfill my joy and that is to please the Father. That is what Paul is saying. Now, believers all the time, you know, kind of wonder what they can do to please the Father. What is it that they can do to please God Almighty? And the thing is, here it is in Philippians. It's not exotic. It's not far-flung. It's not hard or esoteric. In fact, Paul would say it's in your heart and it's in your mouth, meaning it's right in front of you and it's not hard to understand. We might think that it's mundane or it's pedestrian, but to God it counts as righteous fruit. And what's Paul say? Paul says that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And he goes on, but let's stop there And look at what he's saying. That the local body be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. Now, let me kind of go down a rabbit's trail here for a minute. Because as a full gospel preacher, I'm used to hearing about the mind. And what full gospel preachers a lot of times say is forget about your mind You need to follow the spirit because man is a spirit, soul, and body. But the problem with that is here you see that Paul talks all about the mind. Be like-minded. Be of one accord, of one mind. Now, the teaching that you are a spirit, have a soul, and live in a body, the, the teaching secondary to that is that there is a spiritual realm, a soulish realm, and a physical realm, and man lives in all three, kind of like man on three dimensions. But what the Bible teaches is man is a triune being, but he exists in just two dimensions or two realms, the spiritual realm and the natural realm. He is a spiritual being. He has a spiritual man. He's also a natural man. We all know that because we live in bodies. He has a soul, which is the seat of his personality, and that soul is the governor between the two realms. The Bible depicts the inner man and the outer man functioning almost kind of like the same way. The outer man, we have the five senses. We take what what the five senses take in, whether it's through touch, whether it's through sight, hearing, and the like. And then we what? Well, we crunch that in the computer of our mind and make sense of the world. Well, the spiritual man operates very much the same way, but in the spiritual realm. Remember that Paul in Corinthians said 
Well, he said he knew a man in Christ. People think that Paul's talking about himself, and he says, who was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, he could not tell, he said. And he, and he heard unlawful things. Well, you, you compare that also to Luke 16, the rich man who raised up his eyes in Hades. He had eyes, he had a tongue, he had a spiritual body. He was in torment because of the flames. And how man operates is this. He has impressions in the spirit, whether it's God speaking to him or he sees things in the spirit and they bubble up into the soul and then he decides to act on those things that he sees in the spirit the same way as in the physical realm. Now, what I'm trying to get to here is this. We do not throw out our minds. In walking out the faith, we do not step, you know, we are not mindless. In fact, here, Paul writes to us, and we just established that actually this is inspired scripture. So it is the Lord, by inspiration, saying, be like-minded, be of one accord, think the same thing. Now put that in the context of Jesus. Think about Jesus for a minute when it comes to thinking and thinking deliberately. Listen to Luke 9, verse 51. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Talking about Jesus. Jesus didn't throw his mind out in accomplishing redemption for us. But what he did was, he said, I do what I see the Father do. I say what I see, I say what I see the Father saying. I do the works of him who sent me. Well, the Father is invisible in the material world. So Jesus is acting upon spiritual realities, but he's acting upon them in a concrete way in with his body. And so that's the point I'm getting here with verse 2. Because in the local church, the Lord wants us to walk out the faith and do it deliberately, which takes our soul, our personality, our decision-making, and he says, be of one accord and one mind. Now let's move on to verse 3. He writes, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, there's the mind again, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. This is what Paul is striving at in verses 1 and 2. If there be any consolation, if there be any comfort of love, if there's any communion of spirits, let me tell you how to get there. Let me tell you how to do it. And verse 3 and verse 4 is how you get there and do it. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, excessive vanity or seeking recognition, but in lowliness of mind, humility of mind, that is for members of the local church, believers, where every believer esteems other believers better than himself, looking not on his own things, 
not trying to get ahead, but looking on the things of others, esteeming the things of others better than himself. That's how you, that's how we get to communion or fellowship of the Spirit. That's where we have consolation or encouragement in Christ because we see that fellow believers, we're no better than them. We esteem them better than ourselves, even though they might have been persecuted, even though they might have done wrong. We restore such a brother, such a sister in a spirit of meekness, where all believers are on the same level. There are no superstars. There are no giants of the faith, so to speak, or generals of the faith. In the local body, everyone is on the same plane. And when you think about it, that is genius. Because even with our natural family, that's how we deal with our natural family. We have all kinds of different personalities. We have older sisters, younger brothers, and dads and moms and all that. And what? Everybody gets along. Nobody sees the, uh, a sibling as a superstar in the family. One might be more worldly successful than the other one, but a brother is a brother. A sister is a sister. And that is what is depicted here in Philippians, especially in the context of persecution. If there be any mercies, any bows, meaning any kinds of compassion, you're not going to have compassion on somebody that you think is lower than you, but you'll have a lot of compassion for people who you esteem better than yourself. That is how, this is how you get there. In verses 1 and 2. Now remember that this is written by the apostle who gave us the revelation of the authority of the believer. This is written by the apostle who said, we have been crucified and buried and raised and seated with Christ in heavenly places. Because that's what's emphasized today. You know, the believer's authority. We do have spiritual authority. In fact, this apostle had spiritual authority. But the gospel also involves self-emptying. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. But we preach a Christ crucified. And when you look at the context there, you're talking about a Christ who emptied himself of his own self-determination. That's the emphasis that he is getting over in Corinthians. Listen too to Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. He that finds his life shall lose it. And he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. There is that coin, that other side of the coin, from believer's authority to what? self emptying, not seeking your own vain glory, the way that the King James puts it, not seeking what? Strife. Strife is what? Strife is putting yourself above somebody else. It's creating division. 
Kind of like what the Corinthians did. I follow Paul, I follow Peter. Well, I follow Jesus. Trying to one-up one another. But what Paul says here is everyone should operate. Everybody should relate to each other in the church in lowliness of mind. Amen. Esteeming one another better than himself. It's divesting yourself of yourself. Remember Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the picture, the aspiration of the local church. Now, Paul doesn't stop there. And this is where it gets serious. This is where you... This is where he goes beyond just, you know, uh, the general. Let, you know, the, the believers, where you tell believers, well, esteem each other better than yourselves. He brings it down, down to the concrete, and when he does so, he brings it down to the concrete in Christ Jesus. The next few verses are some of the, uh, of the hardest verses in the New Testament to try to get your mind wrapped around because it involves the Lord's own mission. Listen to what he says just after he says, don't, don't engender any strife. Don't seek vainglory. Esteem each other better than yourselves. Look on those, the things of others, rather than your own. And then he says this in verse 5. Let this mind be in you. Again, it's thinking. It's not just, you know, it's not just uh, having impressions of the Spirit. It is deliberate thinking. In fact, one way to, uh, to translate this phrase is to cultivate this mindset. And he says, what? Which was also in Christ Jesus. And this is where it, it, you start to walk out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's saying that you have the mind, the same mindset as Christ Jesus the Lord. In a lot of preaching, Jesus is pushed over to the side as God's unique son and God's unique son only. And there is truth to that. Of course there's truth to that. But here, Paul writes, you cultivate the mindset which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes in and he says, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery or a thing to be seized for his own glory, to be equal with God, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, having been made in the likeness of men and was found in the fashion as a man. He humbled himself. The better translation is he humiliated himself. 
he abased himself, having become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What you see there is you see a lowliness of mind that can't be equaled ever. Was never equaled in the past and will never be equaled in the future. This is the sum total of a lowliness of mind of esteeming others better than yourselves. All in the context of Philippians. Let's go through this. So you can, let's unpack this as much as we can. He says, he says, cultivate the mindset, which was also in Christ Jesus. And the words Christ Jesus start to give it away. Because he wasn't known as Christ Jesus before he was born. He was known as the Word, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And when you go back to the Greek, that word with is not location. It is, he is like God, face to face, like God. And then John, John says, and he was God. He was the Word. And then what's it say? He emptied himself. Another translation is he divested himself, taking the form of a slave, having been made in the likeness of men and was found in the fashion as a man. That's the beginning of emptying right there. He's not doing this for himself. And he's, he's doing it for the Father. And he's also doing it for us, but he's doing it to please the Father. We read that verse He's not living unto himself. He's not aggrandizing himself, but he is committing himself totally, ultimately, entirely to the Father's will. By what? Emptying himself. When he told us, he who, he who seeks to find his life will lose it, and he who loses his life will find it, well, he went before us in doing that. And so he empties himself, he becomes flesh, and it doesn't stop there. You can see you can see the progression in these verses in Philippians. He empties himself, taking the form of a slave, takes the appearance of a man and goes down all the way Subjection all the way unto death. Listen to Romans 15, 8. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a slave of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. Amen. And then we come down to the point where he humbled himself or he humiliated himself having become obedient or having subjected himself to the point of death. To the point of losing his life. God losing his life for the sake of saving mankind and pleasing the Father. 
But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, not only death, but death on a cross. And that death on a cross is where he becomes a curse for us. This is all part of the emptying out. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. That is death on a cross. Listen to this from Hebrews 13. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. What's the writer of Hebrews talking about? He's talking about sacrificed animals. He's talking about the tabernacle. And he's saying, once the offering is made, the bodies of the animals are taken outside the camp to be burned. And then you come to verse 12, and it says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He likens the sacrifice of Christ on the cross to what? The bodies of the sacrificed animals being burned outside the camp. Talk about emptying oneself for others. This is as far as it gets. There's, there's no way to embellish this. There's no way to, to, to try to make it more than it is because when you get the reality of it, when you get the revelation of what he did, then you go back to the prior verses and you say, of course I'll esteem others better than myself. Look what you did for me. You came to redeem me while I was a sinner with no guarantee that I would come to you, that I would call you Lord. And you died for me that way. You emptied yourself out for me that way. So what's that do for the local church? The local church comes together and gathering around that name, around that act, and esteeming one another better than themselves because of the Savior who saved them. You go to Colossians 2.11. It said, In him also were you circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you get, when you get behind that verse, what Paul is saying that Christ himself was cut off. It's like the circumcision of Christ is him being cut off. What we just read in Hebrews. And he agreed to do that by being sent forth by the Father. So we see the mark. We see the Lord of the church. And what is Paul saying in verse, verses 3 and 4? He's saying, you be like-minded. You act like the one who saved you. You don't, you don't seek your own glory. Why? Well, look at the Lord who saved you. He didn't seek his own glory. He, he sought to please the Father. And so relating to each other, we are slaves of Christ. He, 
He took the form of a slave, putting himself into subjection of the Father's will. And as believers, we actually do the very same thing. Listen to Paul, this apostle in Romans 1.1. He opens the letter by saying, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel. In Philippians, Paul and Timothy, the slaves of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. Paul again in Titus, Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of times in our thinking, we think, okay, well, we can be slaves of Christ. We can be slaves of God, but I don't want to be slaves of his body. I don't want to give myself to people who they don't have their act together. I don't want to give myself over to people who, you know, they're not as smart as I am. They, uh, they, they haven't achieved as much as I have. And you go down that list in your mind. But Paul is saying, no, you esteem those people even better than yourselves. Because when you look at Jesus, that's exactly what he did. And being a slave of God, being a slave of Christ, is also being a slave of the church. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. He says, For we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. So it's not a matter of, well... I don't want to put myself in subjection to the church and to other members of the local church. But Paul says here, you do it not for your sake or even for their sake, but for the sake of Christ. And it's for everybody in the church because that's how the church functions. It takes on the image of the one who gave himself over for them. Amen. Peter calls himself a slave of Christ. James calls himself a slave of Christ. And let me tell you this. Let me say this. Go go in your private prayer time and look up these verses. A lot of translations say servants of Christ. That That doesn't get there. Servants is too broad. Slaves is actually the better translation. Why? Because we've been bought with a price. We are not our own anymore. We are his. So we are slaves of Christ. And in your private prayer time, get down on your knees and try to tell the Lord God and Jesus, I am your slave. And you'll see how hard it is. It is not an easy thing to do. And then once you get there, once you're able to talk to God Almighty and say, I lay down my life, I am your slave. Then you follow it up with, I'm a slave of your church, of your body. Yes, there might be people who, in my natural thinking, aren't as good as I am, or they're not as, they're not as far as I am in the Lord, or whatever you want to say, whatever your thinking is. And then you get on your knees before the Lord and said, I'm a slave for your sake to them. I will look after them more 
than myself. I will look after their things and esteem their things more than my own. Because this is not a suggestion. This is an imperative of the church. We hear all the time in preaching about the believer's authority and about the benefits of being in God and being in Christ. And of course, they're there. But you look at Jesus. He was the Word. He was the one who created everyone, everything that you see. And then God sent him forth. And he emptied himself to please the Father. We have the same mission. We are Christ in the earth. And what you see here is have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Think about this a minute. The word was made flesh and he was crucified in what? He's now resurrected with holes in his hands and holes in his feet. And they're going to be there forever. His body is eternal. So we're never going to get past that. We're never going to get past the fact that he emptied himself and gave himself for us. We're never going to get beyond that because every time we see him, whether it's 10,000 years from now or whether it's eons and eons, we're going to see those holes in his hands and the holes in his feet and the slit in his side. And we're going to be reminded, yes, he's the one who did that. He's the one who emptied himself for us. So the least we can do is empty ourselves for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That is what Paul is saying here. That is part of walking out the faith. That is the picture of the local church. And then we get to verse, verses 9 through 11. Listen to what Paul says. After Jesus emptied himself, and you see the progression all the way from what? Becoming flesh all the way to the death on a cross. That's as far as emptying as you can go. What happens? Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's given the name above every name. Look at that first word in verse 9. Wherefore? meaning because of, because of this emptying out, because he didn't shrink back, because he died for us while we were yet sinners, and he pleased the Father, God has exalted him and gave him a name. In fact, the word there, gave, is actually graced. Graced him with a name above every name. Exalted him above everything because of that emptying out because of that divesting. And we've got the same, the same imperative, the same command as the body of Christ. Listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Well, that's what we just read about the Lord Jesus Christ, 
right? So now it's the day of humbling. Today is the day of humiliation. We have been seated with Christ in heavenly places. We are seated at God's right hand. But we also empty ourselves on behalf of the Father and our Lord. The days of humiliation. And we will be exalted in due time. And that is when he returns for the church. Amen. So let me, let me conclude this session this way. Let me ask the question, have you ever cultivated that mindset within yourself? Are you going to? You've heard the word now. Cultivate the mindset which was also in Christ. It's not a suggestion. It's an imperative. And it's how the local body has consolation in Christ. If there be any consolation in Christ, if there's any fellowship in spirit, if there's any comfort of love, mercies, bowels, compassion, then you have the mindset in you and the local church has its mindset in you. Everyone serving everyone else. Everyone a slave of everyone to the one who gave himself for us. Amen. Let me conclude with a benediction. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen.